Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to tonight's talk. My name is Brian McGill, and I'm from the School of Philosophy in Dublin. I should congratulate you on braving the elements. It's very brisk and cool outside. I think if I had a choice, I may have stayed in bed or stayed at home. Now, the talk is about the facts of life. It's called Philosophy and the Facts of Life. And you could be forgiven for thinking that we're going to be talking about birds and the bees, but in fact we're not. Now, the birds and the bees, maybe it should be the subject of a lecture some evening, but it's not the subject of this lecture. So we're going to speak about certain facts. These will be facts about the creation, firstly. And any time we use the word creation, we simply mean the world that we see and know and perceive, the whole world around us, the creation. Now, the problem isn't the facts themselves. So there are these five facts, but the difficulty is that we somehow believe they don't apply to me. That's the difficulty. We, in fact, believe they apply to everybody else except me. So life becomes a series of shocks and surprises and upsets. So if someone should die close to us, we're shocked. Someone ages, we're shocked. I went to Cork during the summer to visit an elderly aunt. And it was 30 years since the last time I'd seen her. And when I saw her, I was absolutely shocked that she was now 30 years older than the last time I saw her. And the shock registered very strongly. I was, saw this little shadow of a person I knew. But I was amused and surprised at the level of shock. That 30 years after my last sighting of this woman, she should now look 30 years older. We are surprised constantly, shocked constantly, and upset constantly. Despite the evidence, there's evidence all around us that these facts are operating whether we like it or not. So the facts in themselves don't cause any difficulty. They don't cause misery. They don't cause the upset and the shock. The difficulty is our non-acceptance of them. Now, philosophy is concerned with wisdom. And knowing and living in appreciation or in true appreciation of certain facts would indeed be living wisely. If you take an ordinary everyday example, knowing the facts about any situation makes things much easier. I remember years ago driving in Dublin with a beautiful lady sitting in the car beside me, beautiful looking lady, but she happened to be a friend of my wife's. And some chaps I worked with spotted me and they didn't know the facts. And when I returned to the office, there was all this, you know, humorous banter and rumor and innuendo. But it was just on perception without any knowledge of facts. Had they known the facts, there would have been no innuendo or suspicion. So knowing the facts about any situation clears it up and makes it very easy to understand. And if you look to the wise, the wise are happy. They're happy in all circumstances, and the wise know the facts. They know the facts about the creation, and they know the facts about themselves. So they live trouble-free, blissfully happy. So they understand, they're not surprised with what happens in the creation. 
they're not subject to the same shocks that we subject ourselves to. They're not subject to the same upsets. So what are these facts? We're going to look at five of them, and we're going to look at them each in turn. And the first one is, what is born will die. So scripture informs us, there's evidence surrounding us every day of the week, that what is born is going to die. There's no escaping that fact. Jesus has told us that we are made of dust, and unto dust we shall return. If you're a Buddhist, you'd be encouraged every day of your life to consciously accept certain inevitables, that old age and death will come upon me someday, and I cannot avoid it. And the idea isn't to make the evening morbid, but this is a fact. It's going to happen. So despite the scriptural authority and the evidence, we deny this fact, and we cover it over with a false belief. Now note something that intellectually we have some understanding of this fact. In our speech, for instance, we would say things like, life's too short. You can't take it with you. What are you worrying about? So there is some sense of this fact, but it's as if it's just an intellectual appreciation. We don't really live in the full awareness of the truthfulness of the fact. It's just like a gentle or light-hearted appreciation of it. Like if we really believed that life was very short, we would live it very differently. So if you want to know what someone believes, you have to look to what they actually do, not what they say or what they think. The false belief is that whatever I think I am, this body, this mind, this heart, we think it's going to live forever. We think death comes to everybody except me somehow. <clears throat> Now, the, it's not humorous, but there is an interesting side to this, that there is an aspect of us that does live forever, but we have the wrong bit. This is like getting a beautiful gift of crystal over Christmas and throwing out the crystal and keeping the box. There is an aspect of one's true self that does continue forever. But this body, this mind, this heart, this entity actually dies. And it's like there's, a, there's some sense of the truthfulness of the aspect that's going to go on forever, and it gets a bit mixed up. And we end up believing that it's somehow this perceived character that's going to go on forever. The consequences of this belief, this false belief then, are we put tremendous energy into maintaining this body wash it and clothe it and feed it and we bring it across to other parts of the world and make it different colour and bring it back and we exercise it and this tremendous amount of energy goes into the maintenance and care and preservation of this body and we're desperately interested in keeping it as young as possible for as long as possible and we love being told we haven't changed a bit in the last 10 years despite the fact that the evidence <laughs> The evidence is everywhere that we have. The effort we put into securing a safe retirement. I was in America during the summer, and I met a young man who was 45, 46, and his entire life 
is dedicated to a day of retirement when he's about 60-something, he thinks, maybe 61 or 2. And I'm talking dedication now. This chappie has a condominium in, at the moment, he's on nine of the very best golf courses in America, including Hawaii. So it's nine condominiums, all beautifully furnished, all geared towards his retirement. So he's postponing happiness today. He's postponing living today. He's postponing enjoyment with the idea that when he's 60-something, he's going to suddenly enjoy all this forever and ever. Amen. He's no concept of it coming to an end. Now, in itself, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, providing for one's retirement, there is nothing wrong with that. But when you see the error and the misery it produces today in pursuit of this postponed happiness in some distant time, it's, it's sad, actually. We're more concerned with leaving material possessions for our children than teaching them not to make this mistake. Those of you with children will know that you sometimes consider what would happen if one were to die tomorrow. How would the family be catered for and cared for? And certainly if I examine my own situation, those considerations a lot of the time are material. How would they be cared for in terms of material possession? And we see that as very, very important to make sure that their material welfare is looked after. Which in itself it is important, but it's not the most important piece. It's the wrong bit. There's an amusing sentence which is that we're very busy securing the future for the bit of us that's not going to be here. And that's what it looks like. We're very, very busy making sure that the future of this character is safe and secure. But if you examine it, the bit that you're securing isn't going to be around. Now, why would we accept the fact, or what difference would it make if we were to live in accordance with this fact that what is born will die. Well, the first thing is that it would remove all the element of shock. There'd be no shock, no surprise, no upset. There would be great understanding of what's actually happening. Our sense of priorities would change dramatically. Instead of trying to secure a glorious future in the sense that I described, we would use our energies to discover the truth about ourselves. What is it that the wise know? What is the aspect of myself that doesn't die? Is it possible to understand that before this body dies, as it were? We would spend some time pursuing that, if not a great deal of time pursuing it. And this would not result in neglect of worldly affairs. It would actually make worldly affairs very interesting. Because as it is, our worldly affairs are very serious matters. This chappy I speak about in America takes his retirement very seriously. In fact, he's breaking his neck trying to make sure it's absolutely perfect. We would also be interested in guiding our children. Like my son came home there some time back and he attends a philosophy group in the School of Philosophy in Dublin. He would have been 16 at the time. He said, oh, he said, um, 
and giving up this philosophy. And what I noticed was that if he had said, I'm giving up physical sport, I would have sat him down and treated it very seriously. But why are you stopping this physical exercise? If he had said, I'm giving up school, it just would not have been tolerated. Why would you stop educating yourself? So there's a hesitancy here before addressing him on why he was stopping the spiritual aspect. But it was addressed in the same way as if he had come home and said, I'm giving up eating. I addressed it in exactly the same way. So we sat down and had a serious discussion about how important this is and encouraged him and he's still in the philosophy class. If we really had the priorities right, we would look to that spiritual aspect and be more interested, for instance, in leaving a spiritual legacy rather than an insurance policy. Or maybe both. The founder of the School of Philosophy was a man called Mr. McLaren. And the inspiration which started the school, which now spans the world in a considerable number of places, simply arose as a result of him seeing his father reading a book. One book called Progress in Poverty by Henry George. And he went to his mother and inquired as to the name of this book that his father found so interesting and so useful. And from the reading of that book, and I'm sure other factors, but certainly one aspect was the reading of this book, inspired the foundation of the School of Philosophy. So that's the kind of encouragement that could come from a relatively modest level of example, really. So it would make quite a difference to accept the fact that what is born is going to die. Fact number two is that we have control over nothing. We control nothing. No situation, no event, no Christmas party, no Christmas dinner. No drive here this evening. We've no guarantee what's going to happen the rest of this evening. We couldn't guarantee we're going to make it home alive. Couldn't guarantee you're going to make the tea break alive. We're told this. Scripturally, we've been told it. You've been told you don't know the day nor the hour. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're encouraged to stop thinking about tomorrow. Stop thinking about what we're going to be eating and drinking. Stop thinking about what we're going to be putting on. Yet, despite the evidence, every day, Every single day we're presented with evidence that we do not control anything. We painfully try and exercise control over most things. We believe we control events and we believe we control people. And not only that, but we do believe it's essential to our happiness. The consequences of this are very painful, really. Because believing that I control the event produces endless anxiety and dissatisfaction when it doesn't unfold the way I want it to, which is daily. If you examine today, it didn't go like you thought. It didn't quite go exactly as you thought. The general day may have, but from moment to moment, you know, in seeking to try and engineer everything to work out a certain way, it brings tremendous dissatisfaction.
And if you look at it, we have just tremendous capacity for a kind of a constant underlying dissatisfaction. Trying to find a parking space, you could be quite irritated and frustrated and annoyed and angry just trying to park your car or trying to get to somewhere before closing time or trying to make a deadline. Tremendous level of irritation and frustration. Trying to control the event. Resistance to people and events is the cause of the difficulty. Instead of following the event, we seek to control or resist the way it's actually going. Now there's a proposition that is nothing succeeds as planned. Nothing succeeds as planned. So the need or the, the suggestion there is to have a look at following events. To actually follow an event moment by moment. Right in behind it. Rather than approaching events with the grand scheme already plotted out and planned out in my head as it were. And following events takes account of time, place, and the needs of the situation. If we try and control the event, it results in a lot of force and a lot of waste of energy. And this is a good time actually to see this in action. There's loads of energy being squandered at the moment. A guru, I don't recall who, was asked one time, was there any indication as to the measure of wisdom in a person? And the answer came back, the number of times we experience disturbance in the day is the measure. So the number of times you feel a little bit irritated or annoyed or intolerant or impatient with how things are unfolding is an indication of the level of wisdom. Now, accepting this fact, what difference would that make? You see, the, the primary difference is that the situation that is unfolding is the fact. In other words, as things are unfolding, that is the way things are. It is raining, or it's cold, or you're late. Or you've gone bankrupt. Or you've, you're ill. Whatever the situation is, is the fact. And it's just useful to spot that it's the resistance that produces all the misery. Like, I don't want this to happen, is the cause of the misery. Despite the fact that it's actually happening. It would produce great patience in us. The result of acceptance is patience. It would put us in a better position to judge, better position to make decisions. Like, until you actually accept the facts of a situation, you can't address it properly. You're not in a position to. While there's all the resistance there, there's a, a fight going on. It puts us in a very poor decision-making or very poor position of judgment. And the difficulty is, you see, Marsilio Ficino was a, an Italian. He's described as the father of the Italian Renaissance. And he gave an instruction for the development of patience. And the instruction was to accept as the very best the current situation that you're in. Whatever it is, 
If it's tragedy, if it's success, difficulty, if it's trying, challenging, painful. And if you look into that instruction, one of the troubles with it is that we think we know what's best. I think I know what's best. I think God has it wrong, in fact. Just for me, in particular. I think he has it fairly well sussed for everybody else. But for me, I think he's just slightly off-center. And I'm constantly thinking I know what's actually best. But who's to say that really very severe tragedy isn't what's best for you? Or who's to say that success isn't what's best? Sometimes people learn more from the, the former than they do from the latter. But if we're judging it ourselves, we think we know it should all be positive or it should all be successful or it should all be going down a particular route despite the evidence. Like the evidence is it's going down, the route it's going down. So acceptance that we have control over nothing would make a substantial difference to one's life, the way one lives. That's fact number two. Number three. Number three is my favorite. This is more will not yield happiness. And once again, we have plenty of scriptural evidence and authority, but more importantly, we have lots of experience in this one. Tons of experience that more does not produce happiness. There is a teacher referred to as Shankaracharya. This is a man that the School of Philosophy has had contact with for over 30 years in India. And he had this to say about this search for more. The natural course for everyone is to merge into the greater form. That is why we see this law working through human beings, that everybody is running from less to whole. And according to his knowledge, he takes his course, some for spiritual, some for material. So there's this natural move towards the whole. And you see the unfolding of that law in the creation where everyone is seeking more. So under wisdom, it would be a spiritual pursuit. Under ignorance, it's actually in the creation. It's more of the creation is going to make me bigger. So more money, more wealth, more food, more possessions will make me somehow bigger and richer and happier. And everyone knows what it's like to sit down in the evening and have one chocolate. And it tastes delightful. And then you look down after and see half a box is gone. <laughs> and you blame everybody else. And one chocolate is delightful. And one does provide a little satisfaction. But ten chocolates makes us very sick. More does not produce happiness. The same guru that was asked about the measurement of wisdom earlier was also asked about evidence with regard to the appetites. So if you want to see if someone's wise, you look to their appetites. If you want to know your own level of wisdom, you look to the control over appetites. 
the wise control their appetites. They don't suffer from all the, the difficulties that we might find ourselves suffering from. Now, the false belief that this produces is that more will definitely result in happiness. More success, more free time, more possession, something will, more of will produce happiness. Now, right now, we could be subject to it. You could think today that if you could just find a certain gift for somebody, you'd be blissfully happy. But you can't find it. Now, the consequences of this are that no sooner is one desire satisfied than another is lying ready for us, waiting. The moment it's satisfied, in pops another one. So the very nature of desire is this insatiable element. You can't satisfy desire. It's impossible. But that's what desire is. It is insatiable. It offers pleasure and pain, and its nature is that it's insatiable. And if we consider it in the light of our own circumstances, it could be that there's a belief there that if a particular aspect was satisfied, I would be blissfully happy. Just a particular area. For some it could be something like, say, money. If I had a lot of money, I'd be free from all the worries to do with money. Now, we could actually live a whole life and believe that to be true. That if I had a lot of money, there'd be no worries about money. Now, we're surrounded with real evidence that that is not true. A lot of money does not dissolve worry. It never has dissolved worry and never will dissolve worry. A lot of money doesn't develop confidence. It has nothing to do with confidence. It's just a lot of money. Like if you were in Egypt and you suddenly get lots of money, you're simply in Egypt with lots of money. It doesn't do anything else. Now, it can be used wisely, yes, like everything. But itself doesn't address the issues that we would love to address with it, or we believe that would address. And if you've none, you'll worry about how to get some. If you have a little, you'll worry about how to get more. And if you have a lot, you'll be worrying about how to hang on to it. Now, if more yielded happiness, there would be a little tab in the paper every day. We wouldn't be discussing the weather anymore. We'd be discussing the perfect happiness state. And the register would be in the paper. It's 1,321,000 euro at the moment, and we'd all be wondering where we are in relation to that. It would be the discussion on everyone's lips. Because if more yielded happiness, there would be a point where it would be reached. But it's never reached, ever. No one ever says, that's the amount. When you have that amount, you're blissfully happy. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that when you have that amount, you're still miserable. And the difficulty is not the money, not the wealth, and not all of the possessions. The difficulty is the belief that this will make me blissfully happy. So why face this fact that more will not make us happy? The rest is a result of letting go, not acquiring. So the rest and the happiness that we would love is the result of letting go things. That's very fundamental. It's not about acquisition. Acquisition doesn't produce rest. 
we would cease seeking permanent happiness in these impermanent things, things that will pass. And if we stopped that seeking, we'd be free to enjoy the things that do have to be addressed, like family and things like Christmas and businesses. And we would actually be free to enjoy all of that instead of so caught up in trying to get something from it. We would suffer little or no misery at loss and experience not too much elation on gain. The whole thing would become more play-like, more enjoyable. We would also guide our families and children to do likewise, instead of encouraging how to make money. I have a daughter who finished her leaving cert recently and came to speak to me about what she was going to do and we had some conversations and discussions and she ended up deciding to go to Trinity to become a teacher. She's also very musical, so she's maintaining her attendance at a music college and learning piano. And she's mentioned that she may become a piano teacher as well, music teacher. So I was saying this to a friend of mine. I was delighted, you see, this is proud daddy now, delighted that his daughter's decided to be a teacher. So when I mentioned this to a friend, the friend said, oh, that's good. The teaching job will give her the long holidays and she can make lots of extra loot on the side with the music teaching. He saw the whole thing in relation to making a few bob. Instead of encouraging her to be of some service, instead of encouraging her to do something that was really of use and benefit to society. So what you have is this girl making a decision to become a teacher. Her father was looking at it as a very proud father but seeing a girl making a decision that she's going to make a contribution. And from another angle, it's being looked at as a, you know, comfortable money-making machine. Now, it's much, much more interesting to see it as your children making a substantial contribution to society than how to go and make a book. And there is a misconception that you can't pursue spiritual matters and be somehow successful in the world. And it is a misconception. The Shankaracharya referred to earlier, the teacher, has said that one should become master of the world and companion of the self simultaneously. In Christian terminology, it would be seek ye first the kingdom of God, then all else is added unto you. I think it's seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, just to be clear. And then all else is added unto you. So the wise have given the direction. They've said, this is how you go about this. So that's fact number three. Fact number four is everything changes and all things come to pass. And again, we have lots of evidence on a daily basis the very nature of this creation is change. It's constantly changing. No two moments are said to be the same. Yet the resistance is palpable. You have whole industries training companies how to meet change with confidence and willingness. Change management. Purely because we are very happy and comfortable with what we know. 
very happy. And we prefer to be stuck with what we know than to open up and meet the so-called unknown. We're happy in a small circle, as it were. So it's a resistance in an effort to hold on to what we think, firstly, we know and we're familiar with. So we don't have any difficulty accepting change when we perceive it to be positive. Then it's okay. But the slightest hint that it might be negative or impinge on our nice little comfortable circle, well, then it's resistance. And it can be very strong resistance. It can be burning oil and a moat, guns, bows and arrows, the lot. But if you try and think of something that's not under the process of change, try and consider something. Is there anything out there that's not under this law that everything changes and all things come to pass? Talking to a group on one occasion about this, they came up with their name. That was the only thing they could come up with. That their name doesn't change. Heraclitus, who was a Greek philosopher, said that you can't step into the same river twice. And he's referring to this. He's referring to this constant changing aspect of this creation. The Buddhists are encouraged daily to hold in mind that all things that they hold dear are subject to change and decay and separation, and I cannot avoid it. So the false belief is, despite the evidence and the words of the wise, we suffer shock and disbelief at this change every day. The consequences are, because the creation we live in is ever-changing, impermanent and insubstantial, and our true nature is unchanging, permanent and substantial, we will never find satisfaction in it. See, the true nature is permanent and substantial. The fact about the creation is that it's impermanent, constantly changing, insubstantial. So the one cannot find satisfaction in the other. Socrates, speaking of the ultimate change, which is death, he describes the fear of death as a pretense to wisdom. And he outlines that our fear is based on what we think we know. We think we know that death is worse than living. We assume we know something about it. And it's this assumption that sets up all the fear and all the resistance. So if you examine any situation that you resist, any change, it might be at work or in your personal lives, if you examine it closely, you'll see you think you know something. You think it's going to be negative, despite the fact you've no evidence. But it's kind of a, a little thinking gets in and locks in. And with that comes the difficulty then. Now, why should we face this fact? Change, which is inevitable, would cause no disturbance. It would all be quite enjoyable. We would seek to develop true confidence, which is only found in the unchanging aspect of our nature. Your true self is ever blissful, ever the same, and does not change. 
And in fact, your true self enjoys all the change, all the variety, all the sudden twists and turns. So the inevitable changes of life, like age and career, or change of circumstances, or status, would be free from all the fear about what's going to happen, in particular what's going to happen to me. And again, it would be more play-like. Fact number five, this is the, the final of the five, really, is that the aim of everyone is the same. Now, if you ask yourself right now the question, what is the aim, the chief aim, of your life above everything else. You'll find that an answer like happiness or contentment or fulfillment will have come to mind, I'm sure. And if we had all the people in Ireland in this room right now, that same answer would come to them as well. If we had all the people in the creation in the room right now, the same answer would come. And it's the aim of every living creature is to be happy, to be contented and to be fulfilled. So everyone is aiming at the same thing. And if I told you that we were all aiming at the same objective, you would expect us to be quite harmonious in our relationship with each other. If we were all crystal clear that the aim was the same, there would be no separation, no division. We would behave like brothers and sisters, behave like one family, or behave like any really truly united group of people. The only thing that differs in the room is the methodology, like how we go about happiness is different, but the actual aim is the same. In a company situation recently, I asked some of the employees who were a bit annoyed with management practices, let's call it that. I asked them to write down their aim for the company. And I also asked the team of managers to write down their aim. And I held them up beside each other, and they were identical. Slightly different wording. But both groups wanted the company to be successful, profitable, secure, employment, etc. Yet they were fighting. They were at each other's throat. Now, when they saw that the aim was the same, a lot of the fighting disappeared, and they sat down to discuss the hows and the whys and the implications of it. But if I see everybody as my enemy and separate from me, with different aims and different aspirations, there is no harmony. I then see the world as a place of division, where I have to carve out my little piece of the action before anyone else gets to it. Like if you look at how tolerant we are of brother and sister, amazing tolerance and capacity to allow them to do anything. If your brother called at the house at night and said, I've just murdered someone, you'd say, come in. You better have a cup of tea. Just purely because you see him as brother, you see him as part of your family. So it doesn't matter what he does. You open your arms and say, come in. And then you address the issue. If a stranger called to your door and said, I've just murdered someone, you might slam the door in his face. I don't know.
So the consequences of this belief, this belief that I am separate, it's, it, the feeling of this would be there's me and the rest. That's how it would manifest. I have a particular aim and everybody else is different from me. Life becomes isolated, separate, where all our seeing is being in opposition. And the separation results then in varying levels of fear when meeting people or meeting situations. Now, wherever there's separation, there is fear. So wherever I see separateness, I would be experiencing fear. Criticism of others would be the norm. Competition for my share would be common. And we'd be silently celebrating the failure of others and hatching punishments for those who've done us some wrong. Now, why face this fact? What difference would it make? Well, relationships would be natural and harmonious, and we would treat each other like brother and sister. The concept of stranger or enemy would disappear, and there'd be a greater sense of unity. And once there is unity at some level, the concept of stranger disappears. If you're on holidays and you happen to meet someone who's Irish, there's a unity at that level, and the concept of stranger disappears. Now, Gandhi described the entire creation as one large family. The Shankaracharya referred to earlier describes us all as coming from the same stock. Like you can mentally see everyone as brother, sister. There'd be no conflict, no stress. Remembering the aim is the same unites the parties. That's what it does. It unites the parties and removes the difficulty or the perceived difficulties. Now, there are the five facts of the creation. The first one is what is born will die. The second one is with control over nothing. Third one is all things change and everything comes to pass. Fourth one is more will not yield happiness. And finally, that the aim of every creature is the same. Now, at the beginning, we said the wise knew those five, but they also knew the fact about themselves. So they know the facts about both aspects and they're blissfully happy. So what are the facts about yourself that the wise know that make them so blissfully happy? And these have an interesting relationship to the five facts about the creation, so I'm going to write them up. The first is that you are eternal. That's the first fact. If you remember the other five, you'll see the relationship between the two. The second is that you are the source of everything. The third is that your very nature is knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. So, uh, excuse me abbreviating this. 
So that stands for knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. The fourth one is that your nature is unchanging. And the last one is that your very nature is unitary. See, the wise know those five facts about themselves. They also know the five facts about the creation. If we don't know this, we seek this in the creation, despite the facts telling us that it's not possible. So if I forget that I actually am in truth, eternal, I actually try and make and find permanency in the creation. I try and look for that quality in the creation. Or I think this is going to go on forever, this body. So it's forgetting those five that we actually try and seek them in the creation itself. Despite the fact that the facts are screaming at us every day, it will not deliver. The creation does not deliver those five things. The truth about yourself is that you are those five things. And discovering that will make all the difference. Thank you very much. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the idea is to raise any questions you'd like to raise on the subject. So, it's over to you. Coming from a Christian background, and over time, I discovered that there were two eternal destinies that I was confronted with, eternal life or eternal damnation. And I was conscious that you were quoting a lot of scripture tonight from the New Testament and you say eternal I am eternal only in my relationship with God not in my body that I now possess mm. could you give me more knowledge on that you see the physical body is just that it's the physical aspect but you have to ask the question is that all there is to me? Is that all there is to myself, this physical body? Which leads you then on to mind. You have body and you have mind. But you're still left with the question, is that all there is to myself? And if you keep the inquiry going, you end up discussing the fact that there's a body, there's a mind, and there's a heart. None of which are eternal. So the body returns to its universal elements of earth, etc. Thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. That definitely takes place, and we see it happening. But the, the aspect of you that's eternal is eternal now. It is eternal always, always was eternal, always will be eternal. And the pursuit of philosophy is to discover that, 
you're actually being encouraged to find out what is that aspect of myself that is eternal. And it is a spiritual aspect, it's not a physical, tangible thing. The aspect of you that's eternal witnesses and observes and is aware of the aspect that's not eternal. Is that all right? Awareness would be a good description of it. The difficulty is that we forget that. I forget that I am myself as such and I become a physical body with a mind and I run around the place thinking I'm a little squirt and all the time forgetting that in actual fact I am my true self ever-present witness and eternal and not going to experience any death and haven't experienced any birth bodies are born and bodies die and the thing is while you're in this body because we're definitely in these bodies at the moment, aren't we? Yes. Not a trick question. <laughs> While we have this physical body, the work is to discover the truth about myself while we are in these bodies. Inevitably, any philosophy like religion we can presume and conjecture, but in the end, we make a leap of faith. And telling me that I am eternal surely is a leap of faith. I must have faith to believe that. I can believe that I'm here sitting on the chair or whatever, that I eat my dinner or I sleep, mm. but Am I supposed to deduct in my life that I am eternal? Am I supposed to believe that, because other people have deducted it, that I am eternal? Well, it's like anything. I mean, if you wanted advice on, say, a legal matter, who would you go to see? I would go to a, a solicitor who had studied the law. Yeah, and you'd go to a solicitor who, at least, you had some faith, knew his subject. Now, how would you know if the advice of the solicitor was good or not? I would look on past test cases or the evolution of the law that he has given. Yeah, and or your own experience. Yes. So the advice of the solicitor would be to, you know, go and attend to A, B and C. You do that and you discover in practice that what the solicitor is saying is true and accurate. Now, there's no subject that's written more about than this one. You know, if you take one teacher that we're familiar with, Jesus Christ, and take all of the words that he has written down, they're screaming at you. They're telling you the truth about yourself constantly. There is endless authority, endless references, endless words of the wise telling us that we're eternal, that we're full of truth, full of knowledge, full of consciousness, blissful. And it's really to set about and try and discover in practice what exactly are the wise telling us. Now, you may require faith along the way, but it's not blind faith. You will require faith, but not sort of stumbling blind faith.
If I could just ask you, what are you looking for? Just in simple terms, what would you hope um, for? And contentedness. For? Contentedness. What kind of contentedness? Would you like temporary contentedness? You know, in my life that I experience now, I would like contentedness. For how long? For the duration of my life as I feel it now. Yeah. So if I said to you, quantify the contentness, what type of contentness are you looking for? I want complete contentedness. Complete contentedness. Mm. Right. Now, for you to set about to look for complete contentedness indicates that there's some knowledge of that. Because you couldn't set out to look for something if you didn't already have some knowledge of it. I agree, yes. So it's like there's an inkling, it's like there's an error being made here, but in the background there's an inkling about the truth of things. For example, I'm setting out looking for complete contentedness is a little indication that there's some knowledge of that here somewhere. Now the wise say, you are complete contentedness. That's what you are. Your very nature is complete, full, contented, blissful. But we forget that. It's like a brown bag going over our head. And we set off and look for it elsewhere. So I, I look for complete contentedness in the world of events and people and circumstances and marriage and business and home and children, etc. I'm actually looking for what I am. And it's like I've won the lotto, I've put it in the wardrobe, and I forgot all about it suddenly. And I'm off out looking for money. The work really is to actually stop and do some work and have a look try and find out what do the words of the wise actually mean in practice. It definitely will require some faith, but not blind faith. Is that all right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, in the first half of your lecture, you discussed the five facts of life, and you gave us the overwhelming obvious evidence that these facts are true. You know, nobody would deny them, I don't mm. think. In the last paragraph, you presented this, you know, which is a mirror image, an opposite of yeah. those five facts. You wouldn't just go through with the data. I mean, philosophy is basically a search for truth, be it pleasant or unpleasant. We want it because it is true, not because it is pleasant. You wouldn't just go through with us like you did in the five facts of life, that they are true. Why is that true? You could take this as a representative list of the words of the wise. It's like what we've just been speaking of. If you take the reading that I referred to just as one description, but you could choose any number. You could choose, in the words of the Christian teaching, you're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, that couldn't possibly refer to that body down there, could it? or this body here, I don't mean yours in particular, but it couldn't possibly refer to our physical bodies. If it does, that means God is this very strange-looking character. So what aspect of you is made in the image and likeness of God? What is it about you that's 
that the image of is godlike. It's not physical. And if you work it back and look at it, it's not your mind. It's not a heart full of emotions. So what is it that's godlike? But you are made in that image. That's a Christian description of this. The piece I referred to, this piece from the Ashtavakra Gita, describes you as free art thou from modification, independent, calm, without dimension or form, imperturbable, thy nature unimaginable intelligence. Know thyself to be pure consciousness. So this really is a reflection of a number of different sources. But if you look to the Christian teaching, if you look to scripture from the East, works like Gita, Bhagavad Gita, or Ashtavakra Gita, or if you look to the words of a teacher, you will find that they will say the same thing. You're eternal. It was just seen by reading that the day will be the attributes that many of us would attribute to God. Yeah. And not necessarily to ourselves. The difficulty is the perception of myself. See, when you and I say myself, what are we referring to? When you say myself, what are you referring to? Imagine that it's that many facets. I, I think you are many facets. Some of the difficulties we have is just to emphasize one: we are a body, yeah. a heart, a mind, a will, a soul, and life. And these facets all together make this entity called you, and dualism, and so on. That we're body and soul. Our philosophy, which sees us just as a thinking, rational being or the practical life that sees us just as an emotional being, is not doing us justice as a diamond, as a multifaceted being. So when you say we're made in the image of likeness of God, I would imagine that God is, you know, in some aspects, similar to every part of us. And just like he wept, he has a heart. And that he's beautiful, like his creation. My simple understanding that God, like us, is similar to a diamond. Yeah. So when I say myself, I'm referring to an entity. I'm referring to this character, separate, Brian McGill, this body, this mind, this heart. The wise aren't referring to that at all. So when a great teacher uses I, myself, they're not referring to what we're referring to. We're referring to small, separate individual. They're referring to a completely different thing altogether. And it's the aspect that you can't actually see the tendency here is to think we are a physical being with a sort of a spiritual soul. The possibility is that we're actually spiritual and manifesting in a physical being. I mean, your question is the question of philosophy, which is who am I or what am I? And it is this pursuit that philosophy is you know, engaged in. But it is actually trying to discover that which is true. That which is true is constant. True is unchanging. Is that all right? 
the word paradise hasn't been mentioned, although you've alluded to the word heaven, or in the first question was, or what is born is going to die. Most people are aware that they are going to die. I don't think they've denied it. And everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, at least painfully or uncomfortably. In fact, the whole Christian message is to make some plans for the future. I don't think philosophy would discourage us from making long-term plans while we still live in the here and now. And in question three, more does not produce happiness. Well, I think it's better to be rich and miserable than to be poor and miserable. It's just a comment I'd make on that one. Could I just... There's a gentleman in Dublin who I've met some time back. See, the pity in the statement is that we actually think what you've said is true. We do actually believe what you've just said, that it would be better miserable rich than miserable poor. We actually believe that. And that is a big mistake. It really is such a mistake. Wealth does nothing for you except just provide you with more things. It doesn't teach you anything about your true nature. It doesn't dissolve desire. It doesn't instill confidence. It doesn't bring the mind to rest. It doesn't produce peace. It just is wealth and it can be used very wisely or very ignorantly. That statement isn't true, unfortunately. There's evidence everywhere. We're surrounded with it. There's a man in Dublin who I've met recently, and there's a couple of funny aspects to him. One is he has about 50 million in cash, 50 in cash, and he tells me he wakes up every single morning on his Egyptian cotton sheets, fearful, apprehensive and fearful. His life, I would describe as tiny, and it's, in, it's a miserable existence the way he lives. He's surrounded with opulence and wealth and more of everything. He was out shopping some time back. He was in Brown Thomas's looking at a table. And it didn't have quite the right size. And he asked the girl where did it come from and she said Spain. The next day he was in Barcelona looking at the table. He's that kind of chap. But he's not a happy man. I went into his library and I was very impressed with all these books. Floor to ceiling books everywhere. So I thought, there's something wrong here, because a man who's read that many books should be happier. Well, there should be some sense of happiness about him. So I asked him, which of these books is your favourite? And he said, books. Never read a book in my life, he said. They're <laughs> seven pounds a metre. Seven pounds a metre. The books were part of the interior design of the house. None of them read, ever. He wouldn't know what was on the shelf. This is true now beautifully decorated place, very wealthy. But and who said why he is now, we're not going to discuss him for too much longer, right? <laughs> the last time I gave this talk, a lady very innocently came up at the end and said, could I have the gentleman that you referred to, his address? <laughs> and she innocently said, I think I could be of help. And she was very shocked when I said, no. 
But I don't know if she saw the funny side of her pursuit. <laughs> My apologies. I don't know if I stopped you in mid-sentence there. No, well, that second part was not that serious. The first part was the important bit about right. paradise. Like Jesus said to one of the thieves that he was crucified with, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes. Now, I don't know whether he was saying you'll be in paradise this very day or whether he was saying one day you will be in paradise. But I'd just like your comment on that aspect, the word paradise or heaven and how we should view it. I hope I'm right, but I think the words are, this day you will be. So I think you could take Jesus at his word and trust that he meant this day. See, paradise is the result of good action. So if we live life really good, good people, we will end up reaping the rewards of good actions. It's like what happens to you right now. If you live your day to day performing really good actions, you will reap the reward of that. But it's not the full discovery of the truth about myself. Well, are you suggesting that it's just simply bliss today, but there is something better, a thing called heaven or paradise, as Jesus described it as? I think heaven would be a step on the way to the full discovery of the truth about myself. Heaven isn't the full, the full shilling. You don't think that we're actually going to go to another place then, as Christians we all imagine that, well, not necessarily be on a cloud strumming harps, but no. at least we'll be in the luxury or something, having a good time, and someone will be peeling the grapes for That's us. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just depends on the school of thought, but some, some schools of thought suggest that this earth is described for some as a hell. So obviously I can't speak from experience as to what exactly it is. But, I mean, we can give reasoned views and we can highlight um, possibilities. But one view is that this, this very creation can be a hell for some and it can be a heaven for some. But I think in, in simple terms, heaven would be the result of good deeds, good actions, good living. But you could live a very good life and not discover the truth about yourself. That's really the, the point that would be worth raising up. I don't want to labour this too much, but like, I wouldn't like people to think that the school of philosophy is discouraging the hope of us all going to a better place. I know it's all very well to talk about uh, living here and now, and if we practice this exercise and all the other tools or ideas, we will come into the present. But it doesn't, I hope, rule out the possibility that when we die, we do go somewhere else. The eye part, at least, goes somewhere else. Now, whether the body is resurrected, as Christians believe, I don't know. But just to press you on that point, you're not ruling out Christianity's and even the other religions' hope of heaven or paradise. You can see it in two ways. You could see paradise or heaven as something that's going to possibly be an opportunity when this so-called death takes place. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that you could actually 
connect with that right now. While living now, you could visit that very place. See, we, we're, if I think I am this body, I will see it as, you know, when death comes, something hopeful might happen. But through inquiry and through discovery, there is a possibility of discovering, as it were, that place that you're referring to now. You see, if you're eternal, if you are truly eternal, that means you always were, always will be, always am. It's always permanently there. If your true nature is permanent and eternal, it doesn't come and go. It doesn't suffer change. And it's discoverable now. But it doesn't rule out what you've said. It doesn't remove the Christian description that you described, but you could actually connect with it right now. So you can hear the words of the teacher like Jesus in a linear fashion, you know, referring back to history and on to the future, or you can hear them as instructions for right now. Come unto me, all ye that are... Yeah. That can be heard as an instruction for one's whole life which will end in rest in some future date. Or it can be an instruction to actually come unto me right now and you would experience the rest or the peace that's being referred to right now. I'm sure if you go into a Catholic church over the next few weeks, you'll see written somewhere, be still and know that I am God. These are all pointing in an interesting direction. They're all pointing towards the truth of the matter. And those statements are true. Be still and know that I am God is, a, is true. But it's discovering what it means in practice is the, is the work. See, our perception of ourselves is so flawed that it couldn't possibly be anything to do with God. You know, I, I think I'm impure, imperfect, incomplete, half-hearted, and Irish. <laughs> God is not impure, imperfect, incomplete, and half-hearted Irishman. So how do you reconcile all this? You have to discover that aspect that isn't under any of those descriptions. But I can have that experience through a relationship with God because man was separated because of sin or separation because of evil and then Jesus came to restore man to that relationship and he said he that hath the Son hath life and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It was narrowing it down very much in that life in the here and now, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And all these scriptures that are in John's Gospel. But to me, it is a relationship with Christ. And Christ, knowing all about me, has died for me. In the beginning, when the world was so evil, God said he would destroy the world he made. But instead, he did, did destroy a lot of mankind. 
But then he did save Noah, according to the scriptures. But he didn't annihilate man completely from the earth. And he could say, well, I'll make a different kind of man. But instead of that, we're going to celebrate the relationship with Christ coming into the world very soon, when Jesus became flesh. So into that, our nature, God became man in order that we could become God. Now, these are my perceptions of it, and I hold them very dearly, and would advocate them to others. No, you're right to. And the ultimate relationship with God is to be one with God, to become one with God. Now, if something can become one with, it was never separate from. You can't be one with and separate from. The error we make is a perceptive thing, it's perception. I think I am this separate entity all the time. I think I'm a man standing up here talking to you. And separate from you. Would you like to sit down? The, the lady with the... You're not banished to the... Uh, <laughs> thing I just noticed you mentioned was accepting how we are and um, accepting that this is the right thing for us at this time. No? Well, accepting the situation that you're in as the very best. As the very best. Does this acceptance call for any action apart from acceptance? Actually, acceptance is the catalyst for reasonable action. So, it, for instance, if you are in a situation or you're meeting some event and you don't accept it, whatever you do is reaction and will be unreasonable. So acceptance is the trigger, if you like, that allows for your action and your response to the event to be reasonable. Like, you can't deal with any event until you accept it as it actually is. But if the result of our acceptance is an action to change, therefore, are we confusing the whole thing of accepting it in the first place? No, no. The creation's changing whether we like it or not. The change is coming whether we like it or not. So you can't refuse to act. Like, refusal to act is an action. It's an act of negligence. So, act we must, but it, it's wanting the creation to go a certain way is the problem, instead of accepting it as it is unfolding. Like if you take a simple example, in traffic, when you, what's it like when you don't accept the situation? You're frustrated. Yeah, and what sort of decision-making capacity do you have? Very little. Yeah, and if you examine all those moments over the years, you're lucky that we're still here, as it were, because some of the actions we take in those moments isn't very intelligent. What's it like when you accept the situation? It's less stressful. Yeah, so it, it removes all that stress and that tension and that push. So in one situation, non-acceptance produces frustration and anger and unreasonable behavior. 
another situation, acceptance produces reasonable behavior. So what acceptance does is it, it makes a man reasonable. Reasonable to act or to speak or to do both. Non-acceptance just turns us into frustrated, angry, irritated, impatient people. The challenging part of that statement is accept as the best. That's the one that usually gets people interestingly going. It's to accept the current situation as the very best that you're in. You see, we do often accept things as the best in hindsight. We often say in hindsight, oh, that was very, very good the way that thing worked out. I'm very happy that that's the way it went. But at the time, we make a judgment and say, no, this, is not, this shouldn't be happening. You know, lots of people who might be fired from a job and they think the whole world has fallen apart. And then in three years' time, they look back and say, that was the very best thing that ever happened to me. Now, the, the same event can't be the worst and the best. It's either the best or it's not the best, but it is the best. And it's to accept it as such and then get on with it. So if you're all fired next week, this is the very best, <laughs> the very best thing that could happen, and then get on with it. Just on that word acceptance, I find it difficult to accept what you're saying. <laughs> You'll be experiencing a little frustration there at the moment. Uh, no, no, just to quote history, like there comes a time where you either fight or you submit, and you may end up as either, you know, a corpse or in bondage. And I think the decision to fight Nazism was the right one. You just didn't accept, you didn't lie down and, and let him walk all over you. No. And the same today is true of Saddam Hussein. If we stand idly by, we will possibly either be, you know, killed or enter into some kind of a bondage. But <coughs> it's not a good idea to accept evil. No. That's the point I make. No, but you see this, when we say acceptance, it doesn't mean accept and do nothing. But you do have to accept the situation. You have to accept the nature of Saddam Hussein or the particular situation that's happening. You have to accept before reasonable action can come. Otherwise, unreasonable actions will come. Do you know what it's like when you're racing to the airport and you're late and you suddenly accept that you're going to be late? What's it like? Those of you who have experienced that. Relief. Free. Free, relief, at ease. And what are you then in a position to do? To act, I presume. To act. You don't just stop on the side of the road and lie down and let buses drive over you. Right. Well, just as long as we make that clear, acceptance doesn't mean doing nothing. No, it definitely doesn't mean doing nothing. In fact, it's quite the reverse. When you don't accept, you're not doing anything. You're just a frustrated, angry, unreasonable human being. So not accepting things as they're unfolding makes us unreasonable as we meet events and meet people. You'll see lots of it in the next fortnight. What more? Brian, could you just repeat the five facts again? 
the five facts. The first is that what is born will die. Second is we have control over nothing. The third is more will not yield happiness. The fourth is all things change and everything comes to pass. And the fifth is that the aim is the same. Have you ever stop and realize that it's only a very short time you're on the planet? I mean, really stop and just look at it. It's a very, very short time. Like it's only like a trip to Spain or something. It's only a vacation. It seems a terrible shame not to use the time wisely. <laughs> I'm glad you haven't got the microphone. <laughs> we don't do any cloning in the school yet. You said earlier good deeds will be rewarded. Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you get a second chance? There's what a, is eternity exactly? Yeah, there's a few possibilities or a few mm. different ways of looking at this. You have three possibilities. Well, you may have more, but we'll just give three for the moment. But you will see a common denominator in the three of them. What we know about is that there's a birth, isn't there? So there's a point at which the beings are born. Is that right? And there is a death, what's called death. So this is the point of birth, this is the point of death. And the piece that we're very clear about is this bit here, aren't we? Very clear about that. Now, one possibility is that there is nothing before that, and there is nothing after it. So we're just a physical entity with a self-contained mind and heart, and our job is to get as much fun out of this creation as possible and then drop dead. That's one possibility, isn't it? And it could be true. Do you like the sound of that one? <laughs> you don't like the sound of that, do you? Well, maybe some do. <laughs> okay, that's one possibility. Now, the other possibility is that we're born, which is the same as this, and we go on, and on death, we continue on in some form. Very familiar possibility, that one, isn't it? Do you recognize that thinking? Okay. Now, the trouble with that is, well, not so much the trouble, but just you need to look at this. This is one-sided immortality. So this is something that has a beginning, sorry, a beginning, yes, and no end. Now, you try and find a piece of string that has a beginning and no end, and you'll be doing very well. That's very questionable, to say the least. The third possibility is that born and you die, which is the same in all three, yeah? But that what happens is the birth is like an appearance. And this is like disappearance. So there's an appearance, which we call birth, and there's a disappearance, which we call death. But what you actually are was there before, is there during, and is there after. 
and you could call that possibility number three. I don't know if there's a fourth possibility, is there? What would a fourth one be? A life before birth, I suppose, and everything ends at death. Oh, I see. So the reverse of this. Yes. But you're right, you could put up a fourth one. What we do know is this is common to all three. So, in this situation, find out which of these is true. Find out which is true while you have that body, mind and heart to actually do the work. But very few people find this one attractive. When you expose this and talk about it a little, this becomes less attractive. And then there's something interesting about this one. Well, that's not the incarnation, though. Not in the sense that I think is meant, no. We keep seeing this from a separate, small point of view. There's a beautiful statement in the Upanishads. The man who sees all creatures in himself, and himself in all creatures knows no sorrow. That's a different view than the small individual view. That's seeing oneself everywhere. In every creature, every being, just oneself. That'd be very different. But for me, it seems overwhelming that you can reach all of these conclusions in one lifetime. And if you consider, for example, those who pass away at a very young age, or mm. those whose lives just don't lend themselves to actually been able to sit back and think about these things mm. because we're running and racing. The idea that we must have to sort it out within several lifetimes, I personally find attractive because I want to come back. <laughs> I just don't know how it can be achieved. The idea of the consciousness is, for me, eternity. And that is a unified consciousness I'm part of God. That's a part of me. It's all one and the same thing. That is the view that I have on it. But I do believe that the idea of birth and death, maybe we can choose to come and go more often than once. Because to reach that eternity, to me, it's daunting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just an idea in the mind that it's daunting, for starters. So. The idea that it's daunting would push it a long way away even, just push it away further and further. You know, if the wise were standing in front of you speaking, they would tell you, you are eternal right now. You always were and you always will be. And the mistake or the difficulty is in how we think. Like you think you're that entity sitting on the chair and I'm another entity up here and I'm very separate from you and different from you. So we each see each other as separate, different, small. But the truth of the matter is that you are eternal and you are of this one self right now. The discovery of the truth of that would remove all the questions. Mm. And the idea of coming back, it wouldn't be an issue. If you take Buddhism, for example, those wise people that we read and all of the rest, they sit in a cave and they have time to ponder and think and meditate. This is why I always think you nearly have to extract yourself from life, you know, to understand it. Mm. 
So this is why I think it's extremely difficult to achieve. That's what, what I, I guess, see as eternity. Have you ever tried sitting in a cave for a day? <laughs> Pretty hard stuff, I would think. I don't know how they do it. I honestly believe that we have, in a sense, an easier situation. See, you don't have to change anything. The wise use all their actions to discover the truth. They don't go changing their actions. They just use their exact current situation, whatever it is now, to discover the truth about themselves. Whatever the profession you're engaged in, whatever you do, whatever your circumstances are, you can use those very circumstances to discover which of these is true. Like changing profession, changing job, changing location does nothing. It doesn't achieve anything. Whether you're sitting in a cave or whether you're, you know, living and working in that alone or whatever your circumstances are, you can use those to discover. I would just like to ask, when you talk about the wise, I assume they're in a constant state of awareness. Hmm. For me, there are times when I can be very aware and here and now and, you know, I'm sitting here in the middle of two people and I'm here and now and there is nothing else on my mind. It's very engaging. Is there a point at which you can be in constant awareness? without having to step back and remind yourself, okay, this is great, I'm on holidays now, I don't have to worry about X, Y, or Z. To me, that would be probably what I would consider eternity or, or good or life. Or the teacher that I referred to earlier, the Shankaracharya, said in one of his conversations, to know the stillness is to know yourself. I agree. So if you just use the word awareness, it is the same thing. So to fully realize yourself is to know that awareness permanently, that stillness. And, you know, our endeavors are getting glimpses of it and appreciations mm -hmm. of it and tastes of it. And, but the work is to make that knowledge permanent. But there is a... Um, is that possible in our human state, to be in that state of awareness. Oh yes, it's possible. Of it's course possible. it's possible. Have you reached that state? Absolutely. <laughs> you see, the question's a red herring question because it, it throws you off the work. Just if I get this little piece I referred to earlier. But not to sell it short, you see the idea is that once, once you get a, a taste for yourself, your true self, all your effort would go in that direction. And you would get lots and lots and lots of glimpses along the way. It's like little signposts telling you cork 100 miles, cork 80 miles, cork 60. You know you're on the right track. But I can't overemphasize that we keep thinking ourselves into the problem. We keep thinking like our questions are all do you know what I mean? We make it sound so far away and we believe it to be far away and, you know, other people have reached some state and I have a lot of work to do and all of this type of thinking. A lot of that thinking is a mistake. You are absolutely fully realized right now. You are yourself right now. But we think otherwise. So let me... Um, 
find this. The natural course for everyone is to merge into the greater form. That is why we see this law working through human beings. Everyone is running from less to whole. Now, according to his knowledge, he takes his course. According to our knowledge, we take the course. So in other words, if I think I'm going to be whole in the pursuit of wealth, that's what I will pursue. If I think it's in the pursuit of knowledge, that's what I will pursue. And I won't rest until I have all knowledge, or I won't rest until I have all wealth. The idea is to discover the knowledge about the self, because that governs your pursuit. So the wise say the self is one, singular, eternal, all-knowing, independent, calm. That's the description of it. Now, somehow, some way, one has to have one's knowledge guided by that so that the pursuit of oneself is true and accurate and not in some other direction. Is that all right? Yes. We're ten past ten, I think. If there's one... Yes, please do. One that has intrigued me for a long time is, you know, space. I think it would fit into number two, we control nothing. Mm. Like there was a time when mankind thought that the earth was flat. If we went far enough, we'd fall over the edge. Well, that changed our whole thinking when it was discovered that, you know, it wasn't flat. Now we have discovered that there are galaxies, you know, just so far away that the mind just boggles. And I just wonder what your comments would be about that idea, how it will change our thinking, our, our perception even of ourselves. It's hard to just get your head around infinity. Mm. That's really what I'm at. I don't think you can get the head around infinity. That's the problem. The head is finite. Infinite is infinite. All we could have in mind is concepts of it. And we can have big concepts and very big concepts, but they're all concepts of it. But the creation is described as the endless, endless, limitless creation. When those words are used, everybody will have a concept now of what that means. And then there's actually what it actually is. But endless and limitless aren't bad. Well, some people think that there may be other galaxies inhabited by other beings similar to ourselves. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Um, we may never know, but it will change the way we think. It may not add up to a whole lot, actually. You see, you can discover as much as you like about the creation. You can discover the extra... Ten galaxies. But if you don't know the truth about yourself and that you're in actual fact beyond the physical creation and all the galaxies, what's the point? In St. Thomas's Gospel, there's this beautiful statement, he who knows the all, the all, but fails to know himself lacks everything. Now, the all in that statement refers to exactly what you're describing, the creation and the galaxies and the extent of it and the 
all this knowledge of all the sciences. To know all of that and be left with no knowledge of oneself, what's, what's the point? Better discover the truth about oneself and then see what's there. Will we go home? Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks.